Hi, this is Hank Davis, and you're listening to the Narratives of North Broad podcast, Stories from Temple Health. Our guest today is Dr. Jessica Beard, a trauma surgeon at Temple University Hospital and the director of research at the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting, where she has also just been named a new Stonelay Foundation Fellow, giving her more opportunity to do research on gun violence prevention. Dr. Beard has a background in public health and has been devoted to trying to reduce the amount of gun violence in Philadelphia. She talks today about her path to medicine, her passion for public health, and how she responds to the emotional challenges of seeing such suffering every day. She also discusses some of the causes and some solutions of gun violence in our cities. So now we bring you Dr. Jessica Beard. Where we often like to start with these podcasts is a really uh, a simple and straightforward question, and and that is sort of tell me about your background, tell us about your background, your path to medicine, to public health, to trauma surgery, to Temple, sort of you know how how you first got interested in medicine and how you ended up here doing caring about what you care so deeply about. Well, first off, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and to be a part of this podcast and really honored, actually, that you want to hear about my story and, and the work that I've been doing. Um, so I'm from Houston originally, and my mom is or was a social worker. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what she sort of instilled in me is service of others. And I liked science and um, uh, decided that I wanted to be a doctor. So I went to undergraduate um in New York and uh, and then medical school. And throughout that path, actually uh, did quite a bit of community service and specifically uh, did some volunteer work in Africa. So in high school, I lived with a family in Ghana. Um, and that really taught me about sort of global inequity. Uh, and kind of, you know, all that experience always sheds light on the inequity that we have here in, in the United States as well. Uh, and then in college, I studied Swahili, and I actually studied Swahili at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, so I speak Swahili. Oh, my gosh. I know, yeah. <laughs> say, say a few words. We have to hear something. Yeah. Um, Tell us hello or yeah. how handsome we are. Ujambo, habari gani, mimi naitwa Jessica. Wow. Natoka Houston. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so... That really opened up a lot of doors in terms of, you know, getting those global experiences. And I really came at it from, you know, an interest in the culture of East Africa and not really necessarily medical. So when I was in in college studying Swahili, I did a research project on the public transportation system, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And just kind of interviewed people in the government about, you know, regulations and things about that. Um, And and that whole system has always been really fascinating to me. So I went to medical school. I did five years of medical school. And during one of the years I spent uh, in Kenya, in Nairobi, which is right next to Tanzania. 
doing prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV research. And there I rode on a lot of public buses to get to the hospital that I was working at. Um, and I did also, as kind of a side project, worked on obstetric fistula with the local uh, surgeons or OBGYNs there. And that's what really inspired me to be a surgeon because I think that, um, you know, the problems, uh, though they were daunting and certainly, um, you know, dealing with equity and promoting access is really important. You know, as a surgeon, you can fix a problem for a single patient. And that's something that you can always fall back on when you're working in public health or even in this realm of gun violence. Uh, So I did my residency, which was a seven-year residency. That was in San Francisco. And two years were spent doing research. So the first year I did a master's in public health at Berkeley, which was really great for me because I think I really understood sort of like the Paul Farmer vision of global health, which was like, I help that individual patient up to the level of, of, of the high income country resource. But what I learned in public health school and specifically at Berkeley was about like public health can be band-aids too. You know, you can kind of um, deal with problems incrementally and, and really help patients. And then the next year after that, I lived in Tanzania again, which is oh my God. the place that I love. And um, I did research. That's where I got really interested in um, training uh, non-physicians and uh, non-surgeons to do surgery. And that's really been my focus in global surgery, um, which I still still work on, although COVID has kind of limit that, limited that a little bit. And throughout my training and residency, you know, I came to understand that the place where surgery most significantly uh, overlaps with public health is trauma surgery. Um, And so that's how I kind of chose my career path in trauma surgery. And then, you know, as a trauma surgeon, obviously, we witnessed that structural, uh, uh, you know, violence every day, essentially, in the form of firearm violence, but also in you know, pedestrians being injured, right? That's a socioeconomic disease as well. Um, So I did my fellowship at Penn where I got a lot of experience in uh, taking care of patients with firearm injury or other penetrating trauma and really became to love Philadelphia. Um, You know, kind of seeing Philadelphia as a place where there's so much opportunity to to work on ameliorating, you know, structural inequity. And then as a, you know, I felt very invested in the place because I had, um, you know, learned a lot about the the circumstance, at least for the the trauma patients. And so that's how I ended up at Temple. And I, I work at Temple because I love our patients, because I think that every single day we are, um, you know, promoting equity by providing the best care for our trauma patients. Um, and it's incredibly rewarding to take care of uh, trauma patients. Well, That's your <laughs> your medical yeah. school career seems a lot more interesting and fun <laughs> than mine. But um, it seems like you're so well traveled. Do you think that plays a part in why you see the world differently and have such a focus on public health? Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes, well, obviously, there's global inequity, right? And the scale is very different. So, you know, in rural Tanzania, where I was doing the research project on um, access to surgical care and what we call task shifting, so sharing surgical um, uh, practice with non-physicians, you know, patients don't have access to basic life-saving surgery, like a hernia repair or a C-section, and patients die unnecessarily. Things are different in Philadelphia, right? Um, So, you know, uh, 
the effects of structural violence really result in sort of an increased incidence in disease of firearm injury. So it's not so much that patients, uh, you know, certainly access is a problem too, but it's a little less about access and more about the incidence of disease. And, and yes, I agree. I mean, I think having that lens of like understanding inequity, approaching it like really from the discipline of public health, uh, really shapes, you know, how I view my work here in Philadelphia as well. And I tell the residents a lot that, you know, the principles of global surgery are about equity. And so in reality, we we are practicing global surgery when we work at Temple, which is as we promote equity for our, our patients and access and outcomes, you know, in de- trying to decrease the incidence of a disease that has disparity. Those are the principles of global surgery. Tell me about your, your your newest associations. You know, as director of research for the Center for Gun Violence Reporting, and um, your fellowship with the uh, Stonely Foundation. And you know, what are these new jobs, and why have you undertaken them? Yeah. So, um, starting on July first, mm-hmm. um, I've now been named a Stonely Fellow, mm-hmm. uh, which basically means that as Stonely helps to fund me for time uh, to do work uh, on gun violence prevention. And that's really important because good research and, uh, you know, high quality uh, work outside of medicine requires time. Um, and, and that's been wonderful uh, for me. Um, and with the Stone Lee Foundation Fellowship, I'm now the director of research for the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. And the project, the Stone Lee Project, is called Changing the Narrative on Gun Violence Reporting. Mm-hmm. And, and its goal is really to kind of elevate community voices. That's what the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting does, but also to really deepen our discussion on gun violence. You know, we know that media and, and the way that people consume media can actually influence people's behavior, mm-hmm. you know, and, and their support of certain policies. And what we think, although we're actively studying this to be more empirical and scientific about it, is that Gun violence reporting uh, in the city of Philadelphia is largely episodic, um, which means that it focuses on the person being shot or people being shot. There's not a lot of follow-up. There's sort of a lack of a human perspective sometimes. And it's often told from the perspective of law enforcement. Um, And, you know, right now what we're kind of trying to really figure out is, like, what is the most ethical or ideal gun violence reporting look like? So that's the project. Hopefully on Friday, if all goes well, I'm going to be starting a research project with patients in the trauma clinic who've been shot to ask them about their experience with reporting on gun violence, like whether their story was reported, whether they interacted with a journalist, how they felt about it, um, how the story was reported from their perspective, whether there were things missing, um, you know, because that patient perspective is really, really important if we're going to say, well, this is what the ideal reporting looks like. So I, of course, as a former journalist, I'm fascinated by that and love that and love to be a part of that somehow. Wow. I mean, I'm very curious to see what kind of... I I would imagine that they're... um, Well, I'm very disappointed in the coverage because there's probably no coverage at all. Or if it is, it's probably a paragraph or, you know, very anonymous sort of bloodless kind of drive you know, gunshot at the corner of whatever. It's really complicated, right? So I had a patient just um, sort of uh, unasked offer that uh, he felt that reporting on his shooting exposed him in some way. Um, And also that it wasn't how he wanted to be exposed because things were going very well for him in his life and he had started a business. 
So, you know, it, it's complicated whether even like those episodic reports are helpful, right? In some ways, we know from our research about half of shootings in Philadelphia are not reported at all. Um, and so if you're one of those half of people, like, I don't know, does it feel like, you know, you're, you couldn't even make the news? Or does it feel like, you know, you're protected in some way? And then obviously, you know, what, who we're focusing on people with non-fatal injuries, but about 20% of people who get shot die. And then in those cases, sometimes what we've heard from family members is like, they want the, the person's name said in the news, right? So right. that's going to be kind of another population that we should figure out how to reach, you know, is, is the families. There has been research in our portfolio um, from our group asking folks from the North Philly community about reporting on gun violence. And in general, they want to hear names um, of, of right. patients who've been shot. Um, but, but the patient's perspective is missing from that. So that's what we're seeking. Are there a few stories or patients that stick out in your mind that really have stuck with you? My own patients or? Or just in general. Well, I'll tell you, the the way that I came to this whole idea was, you know. Which whole idea? The whole idea of of a public health approach to gun violence or or to the reporting issue? The reporting issue, yeah. The whole way that I came to this idea and kind of got interested in it is, you know, coming to Philadelphia and, um, you know, taking care of many patients who've been shot. Um, and sometimes, you know, or oftentimes taking care of somebody who you never even get to meet, right? Because we do that procedure, the ED thoracotomy procedure in the trauma bay, and that I may never get to meet that person. I might only get to meet their family, and sometimes I don't even get to meet their family. And so there, at least on my part, like, it was this effort to kind of try to at least have some understanding of the person, right? Like, who was this person, what was the circumstances? And so when I first came here, I went to the local news reports and I found them to be either missing or episodic and with the same formula um, and almost the same closing statement, which is, you know, police have no leads, there's no suspects. And it's, it makes you feel hopeless. And it provided me no um, kind of insight into understanding gun violence in the city. And then, you know, it also doesn't tell my story, right? So I'm also somebody and, and my colleagues and our residents and students, you know, we're all and nurses and, and all support staff of this hospital. We're all um, kind of part of this story as well. You know, I mean, we're here in the middle of the night responding to sometimes four or five gunshot wounds at a time. And, you know, that comes with it, you know, its own kind of perspective and feelings and things. And that's very rarely portrayed in our um, in, in local media reports either, or, you know, those stories aren't told as well. And so really what the realities of gun violence are are very different than how it's presented. You know, the recovery, right? Like what it looks like to recover from a non-fatal injury, but also, you know, the, the incredible support that our patients have, the incredible people that our patients have, you know, the, the, just the strength that they have to recover from these injuries and keep going. I mean, I have a very close relationship with uh, a few patients, but one in particular that I've been taking care of for, you know, almost two years now and have done many, many surgeries on, you know, and, and, you know, that person's story, it's huge story to me. And it's a huge part of what the narrative on gun violence in Philadelphia is but it's not necessarily portrayed in, in media. So I actually think that people don't really understand, uh, you know, the complexities of gun violence. 
I think there would be great interest in telling those stories. I, I wonder whether devil's advocate hard question, no matter how much you write sympathetic stories or understanding stories where you talk about the family and the patient and their life and the poor high school kid who was on his way to pick up his girlfriend and gets killed, caught in a gang crossfire. And you, you, you learn all about him and you learn all about his family and you understand the situation. Is, you know, is there, is there enough, can there ever be enough attention that will change policy that will get, you know, I mean, I want to come back to, you know, what are the solutions and that we need to, to, to change and prevent the violence. Um, and would any kind of, you know, of coverage change the, the, the current political climate and the dynamic to try to get some more help or solutions? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is incremental, right? Mm -hmm. So, and there's a lot of different types Rock of... Pavilion, emergency room, room six, critical airway team, Rock Pavilion, emergency room, room six, critical airway team, Rock Pavilion, emergency room, is room that six. Is that you, Dr. Beard? No, I'm not on trauma. Okay. <laughs> but, that, but, <laughs> but it is trauma. But that's a perfect example, and I'm going to leave that in there. You, you asked yeah. if, if changing the reporting is ever going to have an impact. Right. Um, and I think yes. I Good. mean, obviously it's incremental, um, but I think that we have sort of a an example of what good public health reporting and health reporting might look like through COVID, right? So like I can go onto the Department of Public Health website and see the number of COVID cases and the percent positives, right? That's what public health is. Right. It's about surveillance and not, you know, not surveillance like the government's watching right, you, right. but like how many people are getting shot every day? Who is monitoring that, right? That's one of the things that the Center for Gun Violence Reporting is doing is that there's a there's a dashboard there. Right, I look at that every day. You can see how many, and he tweets it out every day, how many, it's astounding, it's horrifying. You know, six people today, that. five yesterday, it's unbelievable. But the thing is, is that that data is coming from the Philadelphia Police Department. Right. And so you can see the, the challenge that we have, right? That data is not collected for epidemiological purposes. Right. It is data that we use in our research. So we'll get back to the question around COVID. But, but we, but, but it's not collected by an epidemiologist, and it's not surveilled and tracked in in a fashion, like in a public health approach, right? Like that's what to me a public health approach mm -hmm. means. It means that yeah, f law enforcement is one piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only piece, and so they shouldn't necessarily be sort of the only place where the data comes from, right. right? So if I were to create my own database of shootings, I would have intent on there, right? So this database of shootings that we have is interpersonal violence, and we think probably some um, uh, unintentional shootings, right? Because we see some of the children that right. we've treated in that database. Um, but they're not, suicides aren't there or self-inflicted shootings aren't there. So we don't have the full spectrum of disease. Um, it, it, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So, so I do think that it, modeling a little bit, like if the reporting style were sort of more health reporting rather than, um, you know, criminal justice reporting or crime reporting, right? Gun violence doesn't even track with other crime, right? As crime went down during the pandemic, gun violence increased. Right. So it's something different. And it's something that requires sort of that health understanding, that epidemiology understanding. So part of it is also like dismantling the structures within newsrooms, right? Or improving representation so that there are different perspectives. And all of that is to say that I do think that if 
reporting was structured differently, if the story was told more like a health problem or a public health problem, and then solutions were presented too, right? We don't have all the solutions and it's complex. There's not one solution. But, but exploring those things and making those things be part of the narrative, also giving people hope so that people don't feel hopeless when they hear these stories. Those are all pieces of the puzzle. And I do think that there is hope that things could change slowly. So why has the number of gunshot victims soared, do you think, since the pandemic began? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we'll ever know 100% the answer to that question, but we have done some research specifically trying to understand um, when the increase happened, you know, to kind of shed light on what the mechanisms might be. So we did a project using the police data, um, and we did what's called an interrupted time series analysis. So you take um, this time series data, which is the shootings, and then you look and you say, when did the increase happen? Like, when did the slope in the line change? And we looked, we did a bunch of different kind of models on the data, um, looking at, well, was it, you know, after the containment policies were initiated? Uh, was it after the killing of George Floyd? Um, you know, because certainly gun violence uh, peaks in the summer, you know, so uh, it seemed that that was a possibility. And what we found actually that the increase started on March 16th, which was the day of the um, closure of non-essential businesses in Philadelphia, um, and that it continued to increase over the summer, but it, there was no real inflection point around the murder of George Floyd. So... Um, that tells us that, you know, that increase is really inextricably linked, linked with the containment policies and with the socioeconomic distress that those caused. Because obviously COVID itself can't cause gun violence. Um, and we have another study that we've, uh, we're working on that should be hopefully published soon that shows that, um, you know, in, in addition to kind of overall increases, that the proportion of women and children and also the proportion of all shootings that were mass shootings, so four or more people shot within a block within an hour, that's how we define it, um, increased as well. Uh, and all that kind of, to me, shows that uh, there's this really inextricable link between gun violence and um, structural violence. And when... Uh, policies that are going to affect the poorest people in a place go unmitigated, um, then they'll worsen things that are downstream from structural violence, which is gun violence. And gun violence is a symptom of the increasing unemployment rate. You know, more children being shot is potentially a, a symptom of school closures and of lack of kind of social support for parents and children. Um, the mass shootings represent an intensification, I think, of the overall violence um, that we've been seeing. So, you know, I think that that, again, sheds uh, light on the root causes of gun violence, which are so inextricably li linked with poverty and historic and current racist practices. I want to come back to, to you, the trauma surgeon. And, you know, you, you're so invested in preventing the flow of people into your trauma bay. You know, you spent a lot of time, all this public health work, your new, your, your new fellowship, trying to stop gun violence so gun victims don't show up in your trauma bay and you have to say where you have to save their lives. One of the things that you said um, I found so overwhelming, I actually don't look forward to the summer. It's so incredibly, incredibly overwhelming and frankly traumatizing to keep doing this every day. And so 
I want to ask you, you know, how do you continue? How do you find the balance? Sort of talk to us about that and how you live with seeing such suffering and violence. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. Um, and one thing that, you know, you don't necessarily realize when you're learning to be a surgeon or when you're a student is that these experiences accumulate over time. You know, um, th that those patients, those experiences that you've had, the times in the trauma bay, the cases, you know, they come back to you uh, when you're taking care of each patient. And sometimes they come back to help you. You know, um, I always think of, you know, all of the things that I learned and all of my training and all the people who trained me that I like stand on their shoulders, you know, when I'm helping each individual patient. And the thing about trauma surgery is, is that there are like the highs are so high. You know, I had a patient who was stabbed in the heart who was dead and quite dead, actually. And then, you know, that patient walked out of the hospital and went back to their job as a oh nurse. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, you know, that is something that, you know, you carry with you for through your life for all the other times when, you know, you can't save somebody or when you try really, really hard and maybe you're just not good enough. Um so, you know, I think that having the time for this fellowship is really important to me. You know, obviously, you know, my colleagues and trauma surgeons around the country maybe deal with this differently. But for me, uh, one of the things that's really important for dealing with burnout is advocacy, you know, and getting that time to step away and process and think about, um, you know, the patients. I've actually, uh, might go like this, I've written some poetry about patients. Maybe Ooh. you should edit it for yes, me. Yes, send it to <laughs> me. Um, That's great. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily ready to share it, but it actually really helped from last summer. You know, last year during the pandemic, I was pregnant. I had a baby in May. And so I came back in August where things were really, really peaking. And, you know, we had 60, 70 patients on the service, and it was really, really hard for me. So that's actually when I wrote those poems. But I think there's lots of different ways to process. I think the important thing is understanding that, like, burnout is not a you problem, right? You know, burnout is a system problem. Burnout is is a problem of the injustice in our, in our society. And for me, getting that time to process it, having a little bit more time to talk about it like we're doing now, you know, can be therapeutic. And then also, um, you know, working on advocacy and helping patients to have a voice, which is what I feel like I'm going to do through research. Those are all really important things. This is one way you process by being being an advocate. Just to pivot for a second, with this fellowship, you'll you'll spend less time in the trauma bay. You sort of get a break for a while. Is that it? You get a reduce shifts or something, and more time to do the research. Yeah, that's so that's mm -hmm. kind of what's required by that's the great. fellowship is to have time. Usually, Stonely fellows, you know, work full time uh, on their Stonely project mm -hmm. as a three year fellowship. But for physicians like Dr. Abaya, who you mentioned, right. she's also a Stonely fellow. Um, they allow you to also engage in clinical work. And I think as a surgeon, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. It's only literally been less than a month. But, um, you know, you want to still be, you know, clinically active and, and doing cases, which I am. But it's like finding that perfect balance of, like, making sure that you're still kind of at the top of your game from a surgery standpoint, uh, but also having that time to recuperate. Uh, and I think nobody, you know, each person has a different balance. As a medical student, I'm interested in the steps required to take care of a gunshot victim um, from the adrenaline rush to keeping that under control, but also the actual step one, step two, step three of the care. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. 
Yeah. So um, when you're in attending, the adrenaline rush is very different than it is as a as a resident or as a medical student. So, you know, when I see a patient, um, and Dr. Goldberg will tell you this, her level of expertise is like you know light years beyond mine. But like when I see a patient, I look at them, you know, obviously as a human being, but also I look at them from like where are they injured, what do I need to do, how am I going to save their life. Right, and so trauma and the resuscitation of trauma patients is very formulaic. Uh, if you have a gunshot injured patient, the first thing you'll see that we do is find the gunshot wounds. Um, and that's really important to the trauma surgeon uh, because that tells us where do we need to do surgery, where could the patient be bleeding. And there's not that many places that the patient can be bleeding in a way that's gonna threaten their life. So that's a step, step one. Uh, then we deal with the patient's airway, meaning that we can protect that airway or intubate them if they need that. Um, we make sure that they don't have any air or blood in their chest by triaging that. Um, and then we make sure they have IVs or maybe even a central line and give blood transfusions if needed. Um, for other injured patients, we want to know about you know, their mental status to know whether they might have a head injury. Um, and then, you know, we like to quickly decide sort of where is the next place from the trauma bay that we want to bring the patient, whether it be to the CAT scan for more information, maybe they don't even need a CAT scan, or to the operating room. And, and it's, it, it should be the same way really every time. And it's all about establishing the trajectory in the case of gunshot wounds, of gunshot wound. Wow, interesting. Seems like there must be so much teamwork involved as well to yeah. make sure it's successful. Absolutely. There's no one person that can do trauma surgery by themselves. You know, obviously there's the patient. You know, the patient can give you a lot of information. And uh, and it, what the patient says is really, really important. Um, and I, t I like to tell the, the residents, too, the patient is on your team. If you feel like there's, you know, you're sometimes you feel like you're all alone, you know, and you're you're like trying to kind of figure out what's wrong with the patient. The patient will always be there for you. The patient can always give you information about their condition. And that doesn't only apply to trauma. Uh, but yes, absolutely. And like we talked about with task sharing, right? You know, trauma more than probably any other field is is so team oriented from um you know, the folks in the blood bank who are going to help us, you know, get blood for the patient to the nurses who are going to help us, you know, um, establish IV access. And oftentimes you'll hear from a nurse, you know, this patient is so sweaty, the, the, the tape is falling off. Anytime I hear that, I think this patient is in shock, right? And then the residents, you know, have such incredible expertise in, in trauma surgery here. So it's wonderful to be working with, with residents. And I think the students um, can oftentimes, um, at least when I was a medical student, a lot of what I saw was still the person. You know, I had this patient in, on my surgery rotation who had pseudomyxoma, peritonei, and he was a dentist. And I followed him throughout kind of his whole time when I was a medical student. When he would come for chemotherapy, he would call me and he would show me how to, you know, tie knots and things. And like my level of human understanding for him was so high and so strong. And I think that's why what I love about medical students is just that still that's that incredible human connection that always reminds me. So each member of the team uh, has a great role to play. And, and there's no way to do trauma surgery without a team. Yeah, as I just started third year, I'm having a lot of firsts. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm dealing with like being in the hospital for the first time and seeing 
highs and lows and tragedy, like you're saying. So it's a it's an interesting experience for sure. And I wonder if the news outlets or the politicians, if they got the same glimpse of what you were just explaining and what I'm now seeing, if their approach would be different. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, all perspectives in the story are really important. And I think that um, the narratives are, are super duper important. And I think that, you know, the potential to speak to um, somebody who might not understand that narrative is certainly there. So. Yeah, I think it's a it's a um, a great you know. You asked or somebody asked, is it driven by the gun violence and inclination toward criminal behavior, or is it driven by lack of opportunity and disinvestment? You know, that is to me the. I know where, which camp you're in. You believe strongly that it's the lack of opportunity and, and disinvestment, and I think you believe if I'm right, a public health approach will help remedy this, show this. Um, I, I, the challenge I see is how you convince the public to accept that and to act on it. Um, and I, I love the fact that you, you know, that you're so devoted to this. I found it really interesting. You just said that that's sort of helps. This advocacy is sort of how you cope with the challenges you see in the trauma bay. Um, and Hank asked earlier about patients. I want to come back to patients. Are there you know, can you, without HIPAA violations, can you tell us about a couple that maybe have stayed with you and why, or um, for whatever reason, just to, um, that, you, that you see in your mind's eye or that you literally may keep up with on a regular basis? Well, yeah, I think I mentioned the patient yeah. that I've been caring for for, you know, almost two years True. now. I have a close relationship with him and actually with his mom as well. Um, and he's somebody who was shot actually only one time. Um, he was very unstable when we first did his surgery. We did what's called a damage control surgery for him. Um, and I think he got something like 40 or 50 units of blood. And I could still remember what room he was in in the ICU, and I sat outside of his room really all night, um, sometimes leaving for traumas, but coming back and, and kept resuscitating him. I remember I met his grandfather that night, um, and his mom was there with me. You know, we were there together at his bedside. And we bonded really then about, you know, trying to help him. And, you know, I'm also a mother uh, of two boys. So, you know, I think we bonded about that as well. Um, and, you know, I've sort of been involved in caring for him uh, since then. You know, he developed what's called a fistula, um, which is where you have a hole in your intestine. And, and where his fistula was, was sort of, Really, he couldn't eat. Um, he had a terrible challenges with wound care. Um, and, you know, this is just a really, really difficult complication to have from the gun injury and from the surgeries. And so I, I've done many, many surgeries on him. You know, we've, my colleagues have helped me to take care of him, which I think uh, we finally closed this fistula a couple months ago, and Dr. Scholholm helped me with that case. And I just, I'm so, so grateful and looks, look up to him so much for the help that he provided me with that case. And I'm going to be tearful. <laughs> but, you know, and like helping that patient, now he can eat. You know, he's asked, now can I, when can I get my colostomy reversed? And I'm like, uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I think like he's really healed now or he's working on healing. You know, he's still pretty withdrawn. I think he has depression. He doesn't want a lot of, you know, emotional support. But, um we're working on that. And I think that though, you know, there, there are so many highs and lows, like even after he had his surgery, you know, there was 
some issues and Dr. Scholholm and I were both kind of freaking out and then it was fine and you know then there was another issue so um, you know being it's not that often that you have a, a, a patient like that like that but I think um, I, it's not only the surgery that you use to take care of patients right I learned from the people who trained me that you never turn your back on a patient like that when that's your patient, you take care of them, you stick by them. Um, even if they have a complication, you're upfront about them, you help them to get through it. Um, and, you know, you you just give yourself to that patient. Um, and, 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 I've, and I think that's been pretty rewarding, finally, at the end of this. And again, it goes back to the teamwork, right? When we were doing that surgery of the fistula surgery, I think probably every resident in, in surgery came in to see how it was going. And all of the attendings came, even attending from other services, because there was just such a huge commitment to this patient to help him to get better. It's wonderful. Yeah. It really is. Um, we, we, we are, I mean, I could go all day. I'm afraid we're probably going to run out of time. I Just one or two more questions. You are a mother. You have children. I uh, Congratulations, you just had another. Um, how do you, you know, even before you get this fellowship that you got, which gives you some time to read, how do you do it all? How do you, you know, you've testified, you've, you've written op-eds, you, you, you know, you, you teach, you work crazy shifts and hours. How do you manage it all? How, 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 what's your advice to the students in the world? How do you, how do you swing it? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, it's not easy. Um, and, but I think that, like, being a human and having you know, wh whoever your family is or your interests are, um, you know, there's not one recipe for that for certain. Those things make you a better doctor, right? Like I feel like a lot of the mentors that I had in surgery who were women, like my program director from residency was the first woman to graduate from Hopkins. You know, she didn't have the opportunity to have, have children. Um, I don't know if it's something that she wanted or not. I've never asked her. I actually interviewed her for a grand rounds that I gave about women in surgery, and she told me all about being at Hopkins. Um, but, you know, she paved the way for people like me to, to, to come in and to be surgeons, and for that I'm super grateful. Um, but I, I guess I would say that I don't have a ton of role models on sort of how to be a mom and a surgeon. We could focus on that. And um, so I think for a long time, it was sort of viewed like you couldn't do that, you know, or somehow it would make you weak or that you wouldn't be as good of a surgeon. And I actually think that like being a parent um, and, and having, being, a, being yourself, you know, and being your authentic self uh, makes you a better doctor, you know, and, uh, and patients appreciate that. Um, I can remember for this patient, I, so I came back now I'm going to get real emotional. But I came back um, from maternity leave and, you know, I was pumping, trying to um, continue breastfeeding my baby, which actually I was quite successful around this time around. And I had this big uh, cooler, you know, that I had there in the clinic with me. Um, and, and the patient's mom had this suction device and a wound back device for, to, to care for his fistula. And I just felt such an incredible bond with her because both of us were trying to take care of our children and trying to like bring every apparatus that we could possibly have. And, and, and I just think that like, you know, being a human, being who you are and, um, and however, you know, that, that goes only makes you a better doctor and not a worse doctor.
I Thank agree. You. That's great. Thank yeah. You. Should we hit her with the kickers? Hit her your kickers. Okay, so we just end every podcast with three questions that are kind of off topic, but they're easy softball questions. Um, so where's your favorite place to eat in Philadelphia? Um, I think my favorite place to eat is uh, La Calaca Feliz in Fairmount. Gotta, that's another one for the list. All we right, got to try. That's good. I'm, I think I've been there. I can't remember, but I know I've heard. I know it anyway. Why do you I, love it? Well, um, I being from Texas, right. I really like Mexican food. I like the margaritas that they have <laughs> there. Um, and um, my my children, both of them, love guacamole. So, what do you like to do in your free time? Not that you have that much, but. <laughs> yeah, I like to spend time with my uh, family and my kids and my husband, and we like to go bike riding. We have, like, a whole little setup where there's, like, a little um, kind of uh, uh, back um, setup for the baby. And then my 6-year-old has a bike that's hooked up to my bike, and so he, but he's, like, oh, that's cute. dead weight usually, so I have to yell at him <laughs> to help when we're going up hills. But, yeah, yeah, outdoor stuff. Yeah, and lastly, if you weren't a doctor, what would you be? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know if this is a softball. You know, it's it's sort of hard. Um, I guess a writer, I think, or an English professor. I was an English uh, literature major in college, and I actually chose that after I was pre-med. I chose it to sort of, like, have a different experience, and I didn't know how much I would love it. Um, so Just, There's yeah. nothing greater than a, a physician writer. You know, you have the keys to the kingdom, and I, I really want to help you share you know you, 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 you just even this has been so illuminating i think and thank you for that and and i can I want to encourage you to write awesome well thank you thank again. you dr beard thank, thank you, you very much thank you.